Friends, welcome back to the second episode of Season 3 in the Changing Company podcast. Um, last episode, I shared a bit of my conversation with Deet Aman, who was a leader in a secret organization helping to aid and smuggle the persecuted Jewish population out of Holland during World War II. And, of course, some of the time that she spent in prison and concentration camps for doing so. Uh, today, I get to share my interview with Irene Butter on the other side of the equation, being a persecuted Jewish child during the Holocaust. And Irene was kind enough to invite us into her home, so just a heads up, you will hear um, some background noises and phone ringing and stuff throughout the interview. Um, but we're doing this interview to discuss her book, Shores Beyond Shores. And it's hands down one of the best memoirs I have ever read, which also gave me a lot of insight in understanding timelines and places and events during one of the worst atrocities in human history. Irene has spent several decades now as an advocate for peace and compassion in our communities. And, and, and honestly, my hope is these conversations will not be lost to history, but will in some way transform our thoughts and actions as we see how much they apply to today in 2019. And I, I really hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I was lucky enough to be a part of it. Just to start off, just for a few minutes, I, I would love to just share kind of a brief snippet of just an overview of your story from Germany to the Netherlands um, and kind of the camps and, and how that went through. I was born in Berlin in 1930 and had an idyllic childhood. My early childhood was really wonderful. I <clears throat> lived with... My parents, my brother Werner, who was two years older than I, and my wonderful grandparents. And I was so lucky to have my grandparents in my life during the first six years. And um, uh, it was a, a really happy family. I don't remember quarrels. I don't remember anger. I, I can't remember ever being punished. I probably was, but <laughs> I, I don't in, uh, remember those things. And um, um, our grandparents were very playful, and they took us on trips, and we had a lot of tr treats. And um, my grandfather owned a bank. My father was a partner in the bank, and so when Hitler came to power, eventually, probably around 1935, uh, the bank was taken away. Jews were no longer allowed to own banks. And my father became unemployed. And so that was the first drastic thing that happens. It really changed the family. So my father saw the writing on the wall, and he left one day to go to Amsterdam. He, he went to Holland because Holland was neutral during World War I, and he thought um, it could be safe there for Jews. He was able to get a job with the American Express Company, and then um, we followed. He, he could not come back to get us because that was too dangerous, and the uh, Germans might not let him out, so my mother prepared, and, and we left about three or four months later to join him. And while I was so eager to 
be reunited with my father, uh, our grandparents could not come. So that was the first kind of separation of family. And there were many relatives living in Berlin, and we celebrated holidays, and I had cousins and, and all of that. So we came to Amsterdam, and the um, first two years were peaceful. Of course, our standard of living was lower. We weren't allowed to take all our assets. But my brother and I went to school, and um, we learned the language, and um, life was pretty good until the Nazis invaded um, Holland, and that was in 1940. And then Holland became a Nazi-occupied country immediately, and the escalation, the, the deportation and persecution of Jews escalated. So first, there were many restrictions um, for Jews. Where we were barred from many public places like parks, museums, libraries, movie houses, swimming pools, all that kind of thing. That was the first step. Public transportation. Jews were not allowed to use public transportation. And then um, we couldn't, people who weren't Jewish couldn't visit us, and we couldn't go to the homes of people who weren't Jewish. Then we were. Uh, exiled from the public schools, had to go to Jewish schools. And then we had to wear the Star of David, so it was an immediate identification of who was Jewish and who wasn't. And then the uh, deportation began. And so Jews either went into hiding or uh, they were deported. And being in a Jewish school was difficult because every week there were more and more empty seats in our classroom. And um, so then there was that, that um, deportation to the Jewish theater where we spent a, a few days and then we were released. And I don't know how and why uh, we were allowed to go back home. That I've never figured out. So, but that was... Um, the first step of um, realizing that sooner or later it would probably happen. My father met a friend one day who had just received Ecuadorian passports from somebody in Sweden, and he, he got the um, information and wrote away for the passports, just sent for passport pictures and, and a brief note, but the passports didn't come before we were deported to Vesterborg. And um, so then that was a few months, and I don't know the time gap between when we were in the, in the Jewish theater. Most people from the Jewish theater were transported to Vesterborg. And I don't know how much time we had between that event and then the, the deportation. That happened in June of 1943, and I was not quite, um, I was 12 years old then. So we were in Vesterborg, and um, in retrospect, Vesterborg was, was not nearly <coughs> as bad as Bergen-Belsen, but <coughs> every week a train came, and um, 
people were lined up to um, to be to go on that train, and many of them, most of them, went to Auschwitz. Some went to other camps in Eastern Europe. And then one day, the passports arrived. We were in Vestavov maybe four months, and that was a miracle. First of all, we never had any mail forwarded to us, and then. Um, we didn't know how those passports came. They came in a package, and um, and that changed our status immediately because we were no longer at risk for being deported to a concentration to Auschwitz. And then a few months, and the reason that was because the Germans had an exchange policy. They um, wanted to kind of keep a reserve of Jews who had passports to either North America or South American countries uh, to exchange for German prisoners of war or German citizens who were in allied countries and they couldn't come back to Germany. So the Jews with passports were more valuable to the Germans and so they kept them uh, separate as a reserve for being able to get German citizens back someday. And so then we were sent to Bergen-Belsen, which was considered... Um, Bergen-Belsen had eight camps, but one of them was called the exchange camp, the Austausch, which meant the Jews that were going to be used for exchange. And... Um, so we, we were told Bergen-Belsen would be a better camp than Vesterborg and that we wouldn't be there very long because we would be exchanged. And um, when we arrived, we knew immediately it wasn't better. It was very grim scene to see upon arrival with um, people who were emaciated and wearing rags and the expressions on, on their faces. And it, it was very scary to arrive in, in Bergen-Belsen. Um, life there was gruesome, in a way. Um, the adults had to, had to do hard labor, and that was um, six and a half days of the week of various kinds of projects. Um, they were out of camp, and um, I never knew whether they were going to come back or that my parents would come back because so many gruesome things happened in the camp. There, we had to. Um, there was roll call every day, at least once, sometimes several times. We would stand for hours on a big square to be counted in columns of five, and um, rain or shine, and you you couldn't talk. You had to stand in, in one spot. You couldn't move. Um, and it, uh, people fainted there. People died. People were murdered if they couldn't stand up. It, it was a really gruesome scene. And then there was um, very little food, minimal food rations, consisting of a, of a small piece of bread and a soup at night consisting of turnips cooked in water, and um, the hygienic conditions were horrible. We were very crowded in the barracks. Um, there were epidemics, and um, 
these diseases spread so rapidly because we all had body lice that transmitted disease. And so there was cholera, there was typhus, there was um, polio, pneumonia, dysentery, all kinds of diseases. And people were sick all the time. And the death rate was very high. And um, we were there almost a year. 11 months before when one day there was an announcement that everyone had to report to a doctor to be screened for an exchange transport. And it was a miracle that my family and I were in, included in because out of several thousand people, only 300 were selected. And so we got on a train. It, it was a Red Cross train. We saw the big red crosses on the wagons. And so that was kind of a sign of hope. And um, um, to make a long story short, we boarded this train. And then two nights later, my, my father died on the train. And he wasn't the only one to die, but he was the first one to die. And then when we arrived in Germany, uh, he, he, well, in he died during the night, and then next morning, the town where the train stopped, he, he was his remains were taken off the train and, and put on a bench in the railway station. And my mother was so ill, she'd already been bedridden for several months before we left. And um, we had no choice but to continue the journey. And then another two days later, we arrived in Switzerland. My mother and my brother were in hospitalized immediately, and I wasn't allowed to stay with them. So we were in Switzerland in, in a small town near the German border for, I don't know exactly, I think about four days. And then we were told, and I was with all the other people from from this from Bergen Belsen who had uh, been included, we were told that uh, we were going to America and uh, put on a train to southern France, and there actually were some American citizens on the train that were picked up on the way from Germany to Switzerland, who were interned in Germany. And, you know, they were part of the exchange. And uh, so we arrived in Marseille, and there was um, a big ship, the Gripsholm, which was a Swedish ship. And Sweden was neutral. So this ship was going back and forth uh, during the war to um, bring to, to transport people. And so it turned out, which I only learned many years later, that um, some German citizens who had come to the United States in the 1920s and who, ha who had not become American citizens, but they had children here who were born here who were German citizens. And these people were sent back to Germany. Germany was still in war. Uh, they had been in a camp here in America, an internment camp. And so in Marseille, some people who were on our train 
who were American citizens went on that ship, but the rest of us were sent to a refugee camp in North Africa. And the war wasn't over yet, so for several months I had no communication with my mother and brother. I didn't know if they had survived. And uh, then we, after the war ended, we were able to send letters to each other. But um, there were, we, we had relatives in the United States that um, um, helped us come, immigrate to America. By that time, you had to provide affidavits. They had to show some evidence that they had savings and they could um, support us if we couldn't um, make a living. And, but that took, took a long time. And then finally, um, the end, after almost one year in Algiers, I was able to come to America by myself. And my mother and my brother came six months later. And then that was the first time we were reunited to start a new life here. And of course, there's so much more to the story, even knowing from the book. You know, I'm, I'm picturing this scene, um, which was very hard for me to read in the book, when um, my daughter had been wanting a bicycle for Christmas. And it's all she's been talking about all year. She just turned four years old in December. Oh. <laughs> and, of course, this Christmas, her grandparents bought her a bicycle, and she can't stop talking about it. And in this reality of when you moved to Holland and... Um, you did have one non-Jewish friend who was your best friend you were trying to play with, and one of the only means you were allowed to do was to ride bikes together until the day came um, when the Germans took away your bicycles from the children. Can you talk me through a bit of what that was like? Of course, you have to um, know that Holland is a bicycle country, and even mm. if you went there now, you know, you would see everybody on the bicycle regardless of age or, or gender or color, everybody right in Amsterdam, you know, you got to really wa watch out the traffic. It's mostly <laughs> the bikes you have to worry about. And, and so that was the way you traveled, even if you had the opportunity to take transport, uh, public transportation. Most people bike, you know, and, and you have your basket where you can put your shopping into the basket and people have their children on the bike, you know. So it's part of life there. And since we, the Jews, were no longer allowed to use public transportation, the bicycle meant even more. And when they took the bike away, then your, your world becomes smaller because you can only go where you can, with, with a distance that you could walk. And so since I had to go to a Jewish school, which was considerably further from home than my neighborhood school that I'd been in before, then uh, losing the bike uh, made even more of a difference. So um, the, the bike was such an integral part of life, and um, it, it, it was a big loss. I was curious, you had, um, just for my own 
curiosity, you had saved, your family had saved this bar of chocolate before the Germans had taken you away. The theater was the gathering camp before the, the deportation, correct? And so mm -hmm. it was only a couple days before that you had, your family had celebrated, I believe, was it your birthday? Or was it your brother's birthday where you were breaking off a small piece of this chocolate bar to celebrate and then, and then your family had stored it mm -hmm. away? Um, were you ever able to to come back to that moment to to finish the celebration <laughs> with the bar of chocolate. No, the the bar of chocolate was kept high up on a shelf in a in a cupboard, and um, so when we were deported, we didn't take it with us. So, no, but it was a symbol, you know, mm -hmm. of them. Um, if we put back the chocolate, then that means that we'll have another birthday to celebrate there. Yeah. I remember that struck me so richly, this idea of clinging on to almost hope, right, amidst such despair. Right, right, yeah. Um, That's why I remember it so well. Yeah. I, w I, w I would love to read this, this excerpt from the book. Um, for, for reference, it's it's now that you're in Camp Bergen-Belsen. I, I know folks often asked you, but you, you also even met, I believe it was Anne Frank and Bergen-Belsen through the fence and trying to um, trying to help her out. There was this, this humility that you write with, even in, was it Vesterbark, the first camp? Mm -hmm. And you... It, and you wrote, it's, it's hard for me to read it as you discuss of almost how well off you had it being in this camp, right, compared to an Auschwitz, because you could, because you could have access to coffee or you could send a, a postcard, right? And, mm -hmm. and you almost talked to, almost like how, how lucky for you to be able, while you're in a camp, um, but then you even almost carried that, that humility into Bergen-Belsen, where you're starving to death and you're watching all your friends and family starve to death and die from these diseases and you still talk to and trying to help somebody like Anne Frank, who you even saw as worse off than yourself. Can you, can you talk to me about what you had to go through to try and be able to gather scraps of supplies to throw over to the fence and then to watch them be stolen and ran away from? Well, the, in many camps, they took all the clothing away from people right away, but they didn't do that for, from us. We had our clothing. Now, of course, they were rags by then, you know, almost two years of wearing a, a few garments that we had. and um, Like Werner's shoes as his feet grew, right, and his yeah. feet are busting through the shoes. Right. So um, when we met Anna at the fence, uh, she didn't have any clothes on. She she only had a, a gray blanket around her. In the middle of winter. Right. And um, so when Hanali asked her, you know, is there anything we can do? She said, if you could get me some clothing. So um, the first time Hanali met Anna at the, the fence, I wasn't with her. But then Hanali came to the barrack, and we had become friends. And she said, she told me about her meeting with Anna, and then we gathered some clothing uh, from, you know, there were a lot of people, so we could get some item from 
people because they had clothing. I mean, they were in bad shape, but um, you could spare something. And that's how we got that bundle together. And then someone came and took it. It was very dark there, of course. But then many years later, I met Hanali in Jerusalem because she and her sister survived and and they went to Israel. And she told me she got another bundle of clothing together and threw them over. And that time, Anna did get the clothing. But by then, we were we were already leaving mm-hmm. on this exchange. And, and, and one of the things that struck me when you talk about this exchange was when you pulled up to see the train, you had a strong hesitation, right? Because you're expecting, you know, we've heard this story before and, and we're, we're going to go on another train, right? Even maybe to Auschwitz. But mm-hmm. you said in the book, the train was not a cattle car. It had seats. how hard that is to read, to think about not only using a train to deport people, but to use an animal cart mm-hmm. for swine, right? It was, what was the word you had mentioned earlier that the, the, the SS guards had, would shout at you? Schwein. Schwein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seemed like a lu- luxury, yeah. the car, the train. It was heated and they served warm food Real food. You know, many people who were ex- had exchange passports were transported to Auschwitz in the end or to some other camp. You never knew. Yeah. Well, and I, I want to read this 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 paragraph from from when 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 you get on the train. Like a beast, the train engine panted, its hot breath puffing through the small pipes and valves that ran the length of its giant boiler that's steaming from its stack. Within a half hour inside, I was actually getting hot, but couldn't bring myself to shed my jacket. What if we were suddenly told to get back off again, but take nothing? I couldn't shake the fear that this might be fake, that I would be awakened back in my bunk to a cold room in a day filled with gray and brown floors, ground, sky, and food. How could this be possible? Here we were, the four of us, barely alive, but sitting in a train and about to leave this hell. It really was, or had been, hell. How long did it take you to take off your coat? Hmm. Hard to say. (laughs) Your father would, as you mentioned, eventually pass on Mm -hmm. this train. It wasn't a coincidence that he passed on this train, right? Something happened to him the night before. Right, Could you walk me through that? Well, I only found out later, actually. But that day, my brother and I went to, we had to report to a, a a doctor, they called it, you know, a Nazi doctor. to, he, he would check on people, whether they could be included or not. And so my brother and I dressed my mother and tried to walk her there, but she collapsed. So, so she had to, we had to take her back to her bed. And then we went anyway, my brother and I, thinking, why not? And then my father came back from work, and he, he was just, in very bad shape. He was very weak. 
very pale. He could hardly talk. He was barely conscious. And so um, we explained what had happened. And he said he couldn't go to, to this um, station, this screening station. He need to, needed to lie down. And then we let him rest for a while and then pleaded with him. And so he then came with me, leaning heavily on me, walking to the place where we had to report. And it's all still incomprehensible. They said, um, are you John Hausenberg? And he said, yes. And they said, are you sick? And he said, no. And of course, he looked like he was going to faint any moment. And then they looked at me, the doctor. There was a couple of people there. They looked at me, and they said, well, your children have already been here. Checked off my mother's name and said, get ready to leave tomorrow. And so um, then walked back with my dad and went to bed. And he, he barely made it to the train the next day and then just we didn't know what had happened to him, but later on, I met somebody who told me that he had been beaten at, at labor, at work that day. Because he was leaving? No, they didn't need a reason mm. to beat you, you know. They had these coppers, and they had rubber hoses that they would beat people with, and so he must have gotten badly beaten and, and maybe had some internal bleeding or something, but he didn't tell us. He couldn't speak. And for, forgive me, but it, it seemed as though as you were talking into, he finally let go. Yeah. Because you had made it. Probably that's what happened. <clears throat> um, but before we get to the second half, there's a couple more parts I'd like to go through, if that's okay with you. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, you made it to the ship, but in Sweden, your, your brother and mother had to stay behind in the hospital. Switzerland. Switzerland, excuse me. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, but you were sent on the ship to go to Algeria. Mm -hmm. you, you, you go through this first scene of eating on the ship in such vivid detail, um, which sparked so many questions for me. Um, you, you talked about gazing at this pile of greasy miracles in the center of our table when the sailors' chefs brought out hamburgers and put those in front of you. Now you tried to make your mother proud by eating slowly, but you couldn't. You said, I looked like a wolf. I pushed the food in, taking messy bites before I'd gulped down the last juices streaming down my chin that I didn't bother wiping until the sandwiches were gone. And I would like to read this, this, this other part here when, when you had to excuse yourself to go to the deck of the ship. Light fell across the deck as the door opened and a cook came outside, his white apron stained brown and a cigarette clinging lightly to his lips. He carried a large steel bucket that pulled his body to one side. Buena suerte, he greeted me, making his cigarette bob. At the railing, he lifted the bucket with a grunt 
and let dozens upon dozens of hamburgers splash into the sea. More meat than I had seen in two years, enough to keep all of us healthy, enough to have saved Poppy, all that cooking wasted. I got up and ran to the railing. This time I threw up over the side. I read that and I can't help write even that notion when you talk about enough meat to save your father. This notion when you talked about not being able to believe that you were out of the camp and then also this, this reality that you must have been in while you are eating this delicious meal that you could barely fathom and then watching a sailor dump dozens mm -hmm. of hamburgers when your friends and family were just a train rides away still starving to death. Mm -hmm. That story even connecting into maybe a hint of shame and guilt I feel in my own story of being in a country where we waste 500 pounds of food per person a year, where we mm -hmm. feed more calories to our livestock to solve all of world hunger. And then you read in the news articles, right, the children in Yemen starving to death or mm -hmm. all, all over the parts of the world, right? And I feel as though I am the sailor dumping the hamburgers mm. into the sea. And, and I wonder how you've had to grapple with that narrative through your life story of going from that starving, literally starving to death girl on the ship to re-engaging this culture over the past 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Well, I still can't, I can't waste any food. When my children were little, I was the garbage pail <laughs> until we got a dog. <laughs> but yeah, I, I never can leave any food on my plate, even if, if it doesn't taste so good. And not even a crumb. It, it's just so deeply ingrained. You know, people often get rid of leftovers, they throw them out, you know, whatever hasn't been consumed during the meal. I can't do that. It's hard to identify with, right? I, I volunteer at a food pantry. It gives me great satisfaction to be able to distribute food to people who would go hungry, you know, and, and so I've been doing that for years, and, and a lot of the same people show up, you know, and yeah. you get to know them and you get to know what they like and you try to save it for them if you know they're coming. So it's one way of, I don't know what to call it, but it does give me a lot of satisfaction mm. to be able to do that. If this question is too hard to answer, please feel free to say no, but did you have remorse for making it out of the camp? You mean survivor's guilt? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think I did. I mean, I feel maybe I should have because, you know, if it hadn't been me, maybe it would have been someone else. They, I mean, there was a number 300, right, that they needed to come up with. But um, I haven't, for some reason, I haven't looked at it that way because what am I going to do with guilt? I look at it more as, as a gift to me that I survived and, and to give back in, in some way 
uh, to, it's affected my life and how I live it more than feeling guilty. It, like a, a responsibility to... Yeah. To not even let the, the guilt and the shame consume you because that would almost not be honoring to the people who didn't make it out. Right. Yeah. That, that actually ties, ties in what I, what I kind of wanted to ask you as the final portion of the book part before, before I ask just a couple of follow-up questions. But um, in, in the end of the book, you talked about in, in 1986 when you were asked um, to, to serve on the, on the panel about um, Anna Frank. Anna Frank. Um, and you said during the, pan uh, the panel question and answer period, it dawned on me that Anna wasn't here to tell her story, but you were. Yes, that was her diary, um, but six million others had been forced into silence. And you were 56 years old and had chosen to stay silent. You, you had mentioned earlier in the book about this. You were told once you made it to America, we don't talk about it anymore. Mm -hmm. We move on and it's gone. Mm -hmm. But you said, I had survived. Why? Was there a message attached to my survival? Was I supposed to do something great? I knew I must bear witness to suffering and use my experiences to lessen the burdens of others. I decided that I didn't want to identify with being a victim, but a survivor. And you quote, um, is it Ellie Weisel? Mm -hmm. and I, this, this quote was very fascinating to me. If you were there, if you breathed the air and heard the silence of the dead, you must continue to bear witness to prevent the dead from dying again. Yeah, that's what Elie Wiesel said one day. I heard it and I, I was very deeply affected by that statement. And you also said that we are all hungry for stories of hope and triumph over tragedy. And I, and I and I so I wanted to tie in a few of these questions that I have for you and 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 my first one was just what would you say um, to people like me who are trying to to understand how to parent the next generation without without losing this story? Well, I, when I talk in schools, I often tell. Um, you know, describe the situation. So there were the Nazis, they were the perpetrators, and then there are many victims of, of that regime. But what about the bystanders, all, all the people mm. who didn't necessarily agree with um, the policies and, and the ideology of, of white supremacy? They didn't necessarily agree, but they didn't do anything. And so um, there's a, a documentary that uh, somebody made about me. It's called Never a Bystander. And so I, that's one of my messages to young people. You know, when you see somebody being bullied or you see injustice or um, cruelty or bullying, then you don't turn your back. You shouldn't be turning your back. You shouldn't be passive. You should act. Uh, not to be a bystander, but you can, you can um, support the person that's being victim, victimized. Um, you can become an ally of those people. You can interrupt the bullier. You can look for help. 
but the last thing is to turn your back and walk away. And so I think it's, it's a, a phrase that many students have repeated to me and they never heard before and um, they don't want to be bystanders, they, they want to be rescuers and they, they want to help poor people. And, and I think it, it somehow makes a connection. Well, and even to, to extrapolate that to, to all of us, right? I mean, we are all a bystander to so much in our lives mm -hmm. that it's maybe easier or more comfortable to, to maybe turn the blind eye or, or, or to not dive oh, in. It is e a lot easier. Being, mm -hmm. Not being a bystander is not a simple task, right? Oh. It can be scary. It's difficult to speak out when other people are silent, but it, it's necessary yeah. in our world. And luckily, um, our, the times and, and the way they have um, framed our lives, and a lot of young people are rising to the occasion. Yeah. We have, um, I, I was part of creating an, uh, an endowment here, uh, Raoul Wallenberg, endowment. He was a, a Swede who went to school at the University of Michigan from 1951 to 54. And uh, he rescued um, tens of thousands of people in Hungary. And so we have um, a project now. It's This year was a 26th award given to humanitarians. And there's a whole a lot of them, but anyway, we chose this year to give the medal, it's a medal, to this, the students from Parkland who march for our lives, you know, the, the school in Florida that had um, gun violence. And um, so these students are taking it seriously to yeah. fight against gun violence. And then another group from Chicago called Brave who um, are involved in the same struggle. They, are, they live in a part of Chicago where this happens every day. Their own lives yeah. are at risk from gangs. And, and so I think if young people learn about that and get, and get encouraged, then um, there's some hope. Which is which is such a gift because these kids are doing what us adults with all of our technology and wisdom and resources are too terrified to do ourselves. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it without all of that, with only their voice and community. But sometimes it, it takes one person, right, mm -hmm. to speak out, and then others will follow who, who yeah. don't have the courage to be the first. Yeah. So it's, it's about leadership and social conscience and, you know, it could be a little thing. Um, I tell, the, it, I was in a workshop one time where they were talking about leadership for young people and they said, um, uh, start, start with little things, make it a habit to do an act of kindness every day. So whether it's, um, you know, smiling at a baby or helping an elderly person
carry a grocery bag or, you know, the kind of things mm -hmm. that, that are easy to do. And so um, do an act of kindness every day and then you develop the habit and then you can move on to other, and bullying, you yeah. know, that's so prevalent in the schools and um, it's scary, I think, to, to speak out and take, to act, but I think at least we have to try to, yeah. to um, make young people change makers. They should become change makers, not take, take a passive attitude to what they see around them. Well, and um, as, as we wrap it up here, I'm, there's, there's, there's two questions that, 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 I, that I'd like us to just briefly discuss. The, the first one we mentioned earlier before we started this was, um, do you see history repeating itself in 2018 that you felt in 1940? I do. I see signs of, of hatred, hate, hatred developing, people feeling um, open to hatred, being encouraged. There's an encouragement of hatred right now. There's the them and, and us. And I, <clears throat> that certainly falls into that pattern. Also, um, there's a lot of propaganda that we see now uh, in, in public places. Uh, you see um, uh, there's anti-Semitism in schools. Mm -hmm. I've been close to people who, who told me of examples of what happened, swastikas in many places. Of course, there's been this event in Pittsburgh, but it's not only Jews. Mm -hmm. It's uh, the target groups, you know, that are um, being um, uh, put out there. For examples, you know, people from the Middle East, and a lot of these people who are seeking asylum in our country, and um, it's made impossible for them. People who come here and lose their children and, and don't know how to find them. And uh, people who lose their jobs because they're of a certain color or ethnicity or because they have a name that sounds like it's from a different culture. So, so there's more discrimination. There's more um, bigotry. And, and it's allowed. I mean, for a long time, these things were politically incorrect. So they, they were still there, but they were underneath yeah. the surface. And so um, I recently saw, was reading an article, and I saw a phrase, and it quoted Martin Luther King, who had this statement he made once that the, the, the moral arc bends towards justice ultimately bends towards justice. But then another viewpoint is that um, in the long run, the good will prevail, but the evil never goes away. Mm. It's hard, hard to accept that. It yeah. never goes away. It may go underground, 
but it's still there and then it pops up again. Here's its ugly head. Well, and you, you, you also mentioned this idea of um, how we're referencing people to animals again, and that did not strike me so vividly as such an issue um, until I read your book, right? And, and knowing that that was a physical label you were given to be the swine of the earth. Mm -hmm. And here we are. 75 years later, referencing right. people. White supremacy is, is just like what Hitler, you know, it was the superior race and you had to get rid of Jews and Jehovah Witnesses and gypsies uh, because they contaminate our blood. Mm -hmm. That's what, what they said then. Knowing all of that, facing facing not only this hard story that you're sharing with us, but knowing that part of that story is being relived 75 years later, what keeps you going? What helps you push towards forgiveness and compassion and healing in the world today? Well, I know a lot of good people, and I've been lucky all my life to have models in, in concentration camp. I describe in my book, there was a a woman who was always singing and mm -hmm. smiling and, and she was a symbol of goodness and and those things are important and I feel you can't no matter how bad things are we can't give up hope well friends thank you for joining us today that was just a drop in the bucket of Irene's story and I really can't recommend enough to check out her book, her memoir, Shores Beyond Shores. Um, and all that information is also available at irenebutter.com. Until next time. <laughs>